Okay, come on back. Come on back and uh, grab your Bibles. And uh, we are going to pick up in the book of Colossians. And uh, some lot of people tell the story. If you've heard this sermon illustration, well, forgive me. Indulge me one more time. That a pastor was protesting some, he and his church were protesting some businesses that had moved around the church that were a little uh, risque or unsavory. And they kept it up and kept it up and... um, Finally, the businesses took them to court. And the attorney for the businesses uh, had the pastor on the stand and in a really condescending way, which lawyers tend to be, especially on cross-examination or examination, whatever, but Lawyers tend to be very condescending if you've never listened to them. This one particular lawyer said to the pastor, Aren't you supposed to be a shepherd? Yeah, I'm supposed to be a shepherd. And aren't, or isn't the business of the shepherd? to attend to the sheep, or to tend to the sheep, or attend, whatever. He said, yeah, but I find myself these days fighting off the wolves. That's part of being a shepherd. Colossians is that book. Colossians shows you the heart of a pastor, Paul, who was being a good shepherd, not merely like that condescending lawyer said, by just staying around the sheep in a defensive mode, but also being on the offensive by calling out the wolves or protecting them from the wolves, you see. And here... Paul is fighting against several things. You'll never know the story of Colossians unless you know that. Jewish legalism or legalism in general, and then this thing called Gnosticism. Do you remember that? If you don't know what Gnosticism is, then you won't know what this book is about because almost every single verse is a strike by the pastor against these false things that are starting to come into the the church at Colossae or the Colossian church. And we said last week, didn't we, that Paul calls us 
to exercise ourselves towards godliness. I don't know about you, but when you get 54, that's my age, exercise becomes more difficult and more difficult. I was actually talking to somebody about that this morning. The things I used to be able to do when I was 18 or 16 or 14, I try to do them now, and I'm wiped like for days, right? But Paul here says, exercise yourselves toward godliness, which means we are saved by grace through faith, and we are going to see that we have the righteousness of Christ, and we are reconciled, yes, by the blood of Christ. But once we get there, we're to exercise ourselves towards godliness. In fact, if you turn over to the sixth chapter of Hebrews, in the first verse... Paul says to them, listen, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Let us go on to perfection. You say, well, I'm not perfect. Yeah, but that word means mature. In other words, the heart of Paul is that his people would mature. That's the heart of God, that you would mature. Now that leads me again to the exercise thing. <laughs> Remember, I was talking last week, I went through that long spiel about what exercise is, like cardio, man. You know, when everybody wants to go on a diet, whatever you call it, or get fit, they always want to do mountains and mountains of cardio, which can sort of get you to a place where you reduce, you know, some fat, but you get to a place in cardio where you really just can't go anymore unless you starve yourself. And so people, scientists, the people who study such thing know that lifting weights then is the offensive way to get fit. Cardio is kind of the defensive because you're building muscle supposedly through lifting weights. And one of the things that people have come to know is that the compound lifts, squatting, cleans, jerks, all that sort of thing, where you do lots of movement and move lots of weight, is more helpful than, you know, just biceps and stuff like that. And you're saying, well, why are you talking about that? Because I think, listen, for us to be strengthened so that we can fight off the wolves and be fit spiritually, the way to be strengthened is to do heavy lifting. And Colossians is heavy lifting. If you don't know the backstory to Colossians, well, you'll never understand what Paul is getting at. You see, Paul gives us what theologians call or say is a theology relating to the person, nature, and role of Christ, or a doctrine concerning the nature and work of Jesus Christ here in Colossians. In other words, he develops this theology or Christology, Christology, that you see in different places written by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 through 19, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Ephesians 5, 23 through 24, 1 Timothy 3, 16, Galatians 4, 4 through 7, 1 Timothy 1. The reason I'm telling you that is, watch, watch, before we go further here, is the Lord wants you to be strong in him. 
And the way to do that is to do the heavy lifting, is to think. Not just look it up on Google or have the pastor tell it to you, although we're going to try and do an okay job at that. But that you would think for yourselves so that, watch this, when people come and pile things on you that make, you a, a, make it a trip to you, like, yeah, Jesus is great plus, or but, Jesus but, Jesus plus, you can hold on to the things that God has revealed to you in the scriptures, especially in Colossians. Or when people come and say, like the Gnostics did, wait a minute, you don't measure up. I mean, come on, folks. You haven't been here as many times as I have, people say. <laughs> I mean, come on. You've been to 51 Bible studies. Why would you miss the 52nd? Or you didn't give enough, or, or whatever. People can put trips on you. See, here's why. Legalism, obviously, is doing the forms and rituals without any heart devotion, right? That's one issue, but there is also this set of thinking or this principle or paradigm of thinking called Gnosticism, which Gnostic just means in the know or knowledge. And remember that the Gnostics began with this assumption that matter was evil, that stuff, the body. Anything that was matter was basically evil, but anything that was spiritual was good. Well, see, Paul just attacks that almost in every verse because he says Jesus Christ was fully God, but he was also fully man. He wasn't Casper the ghost, folks. He had a real body. And you say, well, why is that important? It's so important because there's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one. That's in Timothy. And that's Jesus Christ himself. There, see, Jesus is the only one capable or qualified to take man's hand and God's hand and bring them together. Nobody else. So if you diminish who Christ is in any way, You've obliterated reconciliation, which is about what we're about ready to talk about. This is really important. This is heavy lifting. Not many people stick Colossians up on their refrigerator to memorize. Yet, I think this is important because if you feel lied to, deceived, I think what the Lord is saying is, go look at Colossians and take the offensive or do the heavy lifting of finding out who my son is so that you won't be disappointed, so that you won't live a life of striving and straining for me, which you never could measure up. So Gnostics began with the belief that evil or matter was evil, and spiritual was good. And God was spirit. So in order for people to get to God, there had to be these different emanations, or like angels, or steps to get to God. And the farther you are away from God, and closer to earth, the more evil it was. And Jesus came to earth, folks. You see what I'm saying? The Gnostics thought... 
So he couldn't have been, you know, holy and pure and the icon that we studied last week, the very image and nature and essence of God because he was closer to the earth than he was to heaven. And they had this awful system that they said only the intellectual people could attain to get to God where you would get into these deep, knowledgeable understandings and if you did that, there were all these like passwords and codes and mysterious things that you could move from one level to another to get to God. And that's Gnosticism. And it was rough. And Paul here in Colossians, against that backdrop, is trying to develop our spiritual muscles by looking straight at who Christ is. That's Colossians. Last week, what we talked about is this, that there's this basic introduction that Paul gives, and then he talks about and reacts to and commends them, the Colossian church, for the great things that are happening in their fellowship. Now, what's fascinating about this is Paul never, has never been to Colossian or Colossae. He's never been to the church because the church in Ephesus shared with them, and apparently this man named Epaphras became the pastor. He got saved, the church started, and he was really concerned with the things that were coming into the church, so he traveled from Turkey back to Rome. That's where Paul's writing this letter. Paul's in prison, folks, and Paul knows he's probably going to die because Caesar Nero is going to kill him. And he writes this letter back, and he gives it to a couple people, that's for another sermon, and they bring it back and have it read here at the church. And in it, it just explodes with this um, expert and articulate argument of who Christ really is. And so, against that backdrop, it makes us strong in the Lord. Well, he says, your faith in Christ has been told to us, your love for all the saints, you hope, you have faith, love, and hope. And then last week in verse 9 of chapter 1, we see his prayer. His prayers are different than our prayers. Our prayers are, oh, Lord, can you give me the bonus this year? And I, 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 I need a new pair of Nikes. Man, it would be so great to you know, have the patio in the back? Could, could you provide the patio? No, Lord, what, what, the, what Paul prays for is that this church would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that they would walk worthy of the Lord, being fully pleasing, fruitful in every good work, strengthened with all might according to his power for patience in circumstances and long-suffering with people and doing it all with joy. Now, that's hard. You need something. You need supernatural strength, and so do I. Giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's conveyed us, delivered us from the kingdom of darkness over the kingdom of the Son of his love. That's astounding. And then we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We began in chapter or verse 15, the part where Paul then takes the offensive and he wants you to really think about who Christ is. He is the image 
of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. Remember, uh, you know, we talked about in a big way uh, for a long time that he's, that word is icon. Like we get the word icon, I-C-O-N. It's actually E-I-K-O-N. And we discussed at length that that doesn't mean he was, uh, uh, you know, a, a copy of who God is. He's the same in nature and essence as the Father. He's the icon. He's who God is. Since God is invisible, we see God in the visible Jesus. Get it? He's the firstborn over all creation. Don't get freaked out by that. Firstborn, does that mean he was born or created? No, 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 no. Firstborn, you can just look it up in Psalm 89, 27, when David's talking about Solomon. <laughs> he says the exact same thing there. Hey, Solomon is my firstborn. Now, I'm not real smart, but I know David had a lot of kids, and the first one that was born was not Solomon. So firstborn must mean something else, and what it does mean, it means in quality. He's the most revered or respected. He's the one. He's in a special place. Remember Ephraim and Manasseh, same thing. The second born physically is called the firstborn because that one has the honor or the place. Remember all of that. That's important. And we know that he wasn't born because you look right here. He's the one that created all things. So if you create something out of nothing, that means you existed before the creation. Christ is eternal. Now, every one of the things that I'm talking about right here, he's striking right at Gnosticism. Right at Gnosticism in everywhere. He's before all things, and in him all things consist. He holds all things together. Life only makes sense if you know exactly who Christ is. That's what Paul is saying. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the source. He's the strength. He's the wisdom of the body, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in all things he may have the preeminence. That's first place. And we left with the question last week, is he first place in every aspect of your life? Now think about it. You say, oh, yeah, okay. What about your finances? Is he first place there? Or are you first place? See, you're just the steward of everything God's given you. <laughs> Remember that. Uh, is he first place at school? Do you want to worship as unto him and do your best? What? Do you want to consider other classmates and glorify him at school or at work or in anything? Is he first place in your conversations, in what you watch on TV? E. Sorry about that one. In the things that you read, in the music that you listen to, is he first place? See, for a person who's been redeemed and has the Holy Spirit in their life, they're a new creation. And so their whole, our whole goal is to glorify the Lord now. That's our new nature. And he says, do I have first place? He is first place, but does he have first place in your life? And here's where we come to today. Verse 19, 
chapter 1. For it pleased the Father that in him, oh my, all the fullness should dwell. All the fullness should dwell. Can you believe that? See, it's a strike at Gnosticism. Gnosticism said there were all these different angels or emanations that came, and the farther away they got from matter, the earth, the closer they got to God. And if you believed and supported and counted on these emanations of which Christ was one, then you'd get closer to God. Are you catching that? And Paul says something so amazing, we can't even hardly understand it if we don't know Greek. And as I tell you all the time, I don't know Greek. I just use the Blue Letter Bible and look up the words. And this word here, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. That word fullness is pleroma. Pleroma. It's a term that the Gnostics would use that would talk about the sum total of all divine attributes and power. So the Gnostics would use this word, and what's funny is Paul takes what they know. You want to know how to be a great witnesser, evangelizer? Is witnesser a word? It is or no? I don't think it is either. <clears throat> you want to know how to witness in a great way? Take what people are, know about and just bring it right into the topic and tie it back to the cross of Jesus Christ. You, you can do it. And Paul does it here. He, he takes what they know, play Roma. And he says, it pleased the Father that in him, look, all the fullness, all the pleroma dwells in Christ. Now watch this. Dwell. It means more than just to reside in. This is something you want to really pay attention to. When the pleroma of God dwells in Christ, it means to be at home permanently. An expert on the subject, Dr. Kenneth Weiss, Greek expert, in his commentary says this about fullness. You ready? Listen now. Pay attention. Fullness was not something to his being that was not natural to him, but, at that, but that it was part of his essential being as a part of his very constitution, and that it was permanently. It's not something added to his being that wasn't natural to him, but that it was part of his essential being. So, what Paul is saying here is, why would you chase after different stuff? You have Christ, and all the fullness of the Father is in him. You don't have to have anything else. You get it? It's all about Jesus, because he is the fullness and the fullness dwells in him. Warren Wearsby points out that the Father would never or not give his pleroma, divine nature, same in nature and essence, to a created being. The eternal Father, this is important. You're, you're, you guys are looking at me like I'm glazed over, or like you're glazed over. But you see, the eternal Father 
would only give his pleroma to his eternal son, you're saying, well, come on. Well, see, here's what's going to happen. This Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I don't know, some week of your life, guys in white shirts, black ties, little name tag. They're going to come and they weren't going to want to talk to you in the scriptures about the Lord. And they're going to make it sound like they know who Jesus is. And they're going to talk to you about Jesus. And they're going to talk about things like grace and faith and all that sort of thing. But the problem is they don't believe that. They don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. So whether it's Mormons or Jehovah's Witness or Gnostics or legalists, They're putting something on to us that Paul never requires. He's saying, Jesus is enough. The Father, in him all the fullness should dwell. And that is so beautiful because by him, the Father has chosen to reconcile all things to himself. Now, here we go. My family is going to check out right here. Because this is my favorite topic of the Bible. (laughs) Because I think if you know about reconciliation, your life is going to be totally free in Christ. Here's why. Remember when you were in kindergarten and you you made, I don't know, maybe you made a mistake and you stole somebody's crayons. Let's say Tim sold Gertrude's crayons. What would the teacher do when they found out that Tim had stolen Gertrude's crayons? Now, Tim, that's not very nice. We don't steal. Not supposed to steal. So here's what I want you to do, Tim. I want you to give back the crayons to Gertrude, and I want you to say you're sorry. Everybody tracking with me? In that scenario, in human reconciliation, who is to make the first move towards reconciliation? The party that offended the other. The offending party is supposed to make the first move towards the one who was offended. Are you getting that? And sometimes reconciliation happens because Gertrude goes, Okay, Tim, I accept your apology and thank you. But reconciliation might not happen because Gertrude might say, Well, heck with him. I'm never talking to him again. Everybody with me? But the important part is reconciliation never happens unless the offending party goes to the offended party and makes the first move, right? Do me a favor. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul, writing to a different church, the Corinthian church, says this in verse 12. I was so glad to see we sang that song today about reconciliation. Don't tune out. I think you're going to be totally blessed by this. For we do not, verse 12 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Man, what a great way to talk about Christians, right? We're beside ourselves. We can't hardly contain it. We just can't contain it, man. We're beside ourselves because we're for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. Here it comes. For the love of Christ compels us 
because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Did you catch that? If, we, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, verse 16 says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now as we know him thus no longer, therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Now all things are of God who has, look at this. Verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. If you're sitting here and you know that you're a child of God, saved by the blood, filled with the Holy Spirit, and you know it, I know your ministry. You come to me, what, what should I do in ministry? Well, I could be a real smart aleck, which I am a lot of times. And I could say, well, you have the ministry of reconciliation. Wherever you are, whatever you go, your ministry is the same ministries as Paul's. It's the ministry of reconciliation. And the way in which we help that process is we just point people to the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. If he wasn't fully God and if he wasn't fully man, he's not qualified to be the mediator, but he is. And so we point people to them so that they can come back to the Father. That's reconciliation. And here's the beautiful part about this. Verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciled the world to himself. <gasps> Let's go back to Tim and Gertrude. See, in, God, in man's economy, if there is ever to be reconciliation, the offending party moves first. But the Bible says that us sinners who have offended God, we're the offending party. We've fallen short of the glory of God. Our eyes are blinded, and we make no moves to get back to God. Look at this, verse 19. The offended party in God's economy, God himself, the one that's been rebelled against, the one who was sinned against, the one who was hurt, he makes the entire move. The offended party, God himself, moves toward the offending people. That's us. That's astounding. Who could come up with such a thing? God himself. And he didn't just stop there. I haven't read you the rest. So it says there in 2 Corinthians, not only is God, the offended party, moving in Christ towards the world to reconcile the world to himself, but then it says not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed us to us as the, uh, us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. Boy, does that put a different spin on your life? It's not about the bills. It's not about the white picket fence. It's not about the vacations, although I'm looking forward to mine. It's not about the cars, it's not about the shoes, it's not about the clothes, it's not about the image, it's not about your silly Instagram page. Your life 
is a plea to the world to come back to God. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, if you've come to this church for any length of time, you've heard this, but you're going to hear it again. At the cross, the sins of the world are imputed to Christ. That's an accounting term because Christ is not a sinner. Put into Christ's spiritual bank account, although he never sinned, by some sort of spiritual accounting is the sins of the world. Your sin and my sin, past, present, and future, imputed to Christ on the cross. God's wrath is poured out against the sins of the world. And now for those who surrender their lives to Christ, catch it, his righteousness is now imputed into your spiritual bank account. Wow. Which means he sees you as perfectly righteous based on the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are are you catching that? Well, we need Angie here because that's an amen and all that. You see, and the beautiful part is the offended party is the one who made it possible. That's reconciliation. That's righteousness. Oh, yeah, you still live in this body, in this tent, and you are going to sin. God has taken care of it, past, present, and future. And you have imputed righteousness. It's in your account. (laughs) I I, I can't think. I, I seriously can't. There's nothing more freeing than that doctrine. You don't have to compare yourself to somebody else. What? You've been a Christian for one week. Do you think I have more imputed righteousness as the pastor than the Christian for one week? I don't. Am I maturing in the Lord, maybe? Hopefully, I don't know. Some would say no, but yes, we're maturing in the Lord, but he has righteousness. I have the righteousness, but it is nothing because of me. It's all because of God the Father through the Son. Are you kidding me? All the straining and striving in an improper way, gone. It's like uh, that feeling when the weight is lifted off of your life. That's reconciliation. So when you go back here now, see, that's a real strike at the Gnostics and the legalists Because what they want to say is, yeah, of course, it's by the blood of Jesus Christ, as long as you do X, Y, and Z. Well, wait a minute. I have the righteousness of Christ, and Paul wants you to know it so that you can live free and bold and fully ablaze for him and not be hindered by the other stuff, just free to plead with others to be reconciled to God. Wow. If God calls you to be a chemist or a, you know, stay-at-home mom or, you know, uh, work in a restaurant, it it doesn't matter where you go now. Of course, you want to do well. uh, Anything you do, you do unto the Lord. But anywhere you go, whatever you do, it's the same thing. 
for you as it is for us in the body of Christ. It's reconciliation. Wow, what a freeing doctrine. And I got so excited, I moved away from Colossians, so I got to move back there. And so when you turn back to chapter uh, 1, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. All the fullness, the pleroma, should dwell. That's, uh, you know, not something added to his being that wasn't natural to him, but that it was part of his essential being. As part of his very constitution, it applies to you. And the goal of all of this is that you and I would be reconciled by him to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things on in heaven. This is such efficacious work that everything in the universe is reconciled back to Christ. You know this, right? The Bible tells us that creation is currently groaning creaking. It's like me at 54. But worse, God's going to set that right. That's going to be reconciled. Oh my. So whether things on earth or things on heaven, how was this peace made? It was made through the blood of his cross. Trust in the blood. Trust in his death. Look to the cross. It's the answer of all life. There's nothing, everything flows from that. There's no other answers. It's the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Because look, you who once were alienated and enemies. See, here's what the Gnostics would say. You're in the other camp and we ain't. So, It's been nice knowing you, but apparently I'm a little bit more intellectual than you, and I'm going to progress on, and I'm going to be able to reach God. Sorry, but Paul says on purpose, wait a minute, all of us, we all were alienated and enemies, and remember, uh, these aren't Jewish people he's writing to, he's writing to Gentiles. You were alienated and enemies, see, because the Jewish people thought they were the people of God, and of course, they were in one sense. But that salvation couldn't come to any other but them. And God's saying, you, like everyone, are alienated. You were in another camp. You were estranged. You were enemies in your mind. How? By wicked works. If you're Jewish or Greek or from Pennsylvania or from Africa or from Russia or wherever, what alienates you from God? It's the wicked works. It's that you're a sinner. So we're all on a level playing field here. You were enemies, yet now, look at this. Every time you hear the word reconciled, I hope you do what I do. Just get jazzed, man. Just so thankful and grateful and humbled. I'm reconciled, and I didn't even make the first move. And I get his imputed righteousness because he took my imputed or our imputed sins. Man, I didn't know that for about 10 years of my Christianity. Oh, is that frustrating when you don't know that? Because if you make this mistake or that mistake, of course we want to be repentant and sorrowful for our sins. Of course, that's not what I'm saying, but it doesn't disqualify you. God bless you from everything. It doesn't, you, no, you confess your sin. You go to the other, you ask for forgiveness, and you keep moving on in the Lord because he sees you as perfectly righteous. Whew. You'll never stop being his kid. Oh, my goodness. So he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death 
to present you holy and blameless above reproach in his sight. You see how it all fits together now that you know 2 Corinthians 5? You get his righteousness. In one hand, positionally, you're perfectly righteous. On the other hand, practically, you're still living this life in which you're moving towards more Christ-likeness, if that makes sense. So you're living life sort of on a double plane. The one plane that God sees you, you're perfectly righteous, but the reality is you still live in this tent, and he's moving you on in more Christ-likeness practically. That's what he's talking about here. And it's Christ and Christ only who presents you holy and blameless and above reproach in the sight of God. If you're straining and striving to be the perfect little boy or perfect little girl, remember, it's because of his righteousness that you come on in. Oh, man, you've been forgiven. Now, does that mean you don't pursue holiness? Of course not. Hebrews tells us to pursue holiness. Timothy, in the book, Paul tells us to exercise towards godliness. Of course we do, and yet... The pressure's off. We can just rest and relax and keep moving with our good, good Father. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. You see, hopefully today, oh, look what I did there. Hopefully today, you're now seeing more and more of the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that he paid it all. That should be a song. The hope of the gospel is that he moved towards us while we weren't even looking and drew us and wooed us and brought us back to the Father, and he's the perfect mediator, and now we have his righteousness, and what a hope it is. We're ultimately going to be with him in heaven. That's what we have in us is the Holy Spirit, the guarantee, the down payment of us into heaven. So we have this hope of the gospel. It's, it's all-encompassing. It impacts our lives in every way. And ultimately, we know we're settled. We know it. We're going to be with him forever in heaven. That's the hope of the gospel. Boy, does that change your outlook on life? Where you worry about, you know, the bill or, or, or whatever. Of course, you have to pay your bills and do right. But the Lord has given us this greater vision, the good news that we're to be pleading with people about and for him. This hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. By the way, that just means servant. So the minister shouldn't have the front place in the church parking lot. Man, does that bug me. If you go to a church that has that, God bless you. I'm not, but gosh, really? Do I get all the perks because God's called me to just something different than he's called you to? No, I'm no better or no different than you. The pastor's no better or no different than you. We're just servants. We're just trying to show you how to serve and to serve because we love it and we've been impacted by the Lord. I, Paul, became a minister. He knew he was appointed to this and called by the Lord. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. <laughs> Remember, folks, think about this. Can you imagine if there's this dude that showed up, you know, a, through the glass at the prison and said, hey, hey you don't know me. I'm Epaphras. And uh, I pastor this little church 
way out in Asia, uh, Turkey Minor. Uh, you, you'd never been to the church. And listen, there's some things that are happening. I'm going to tell you something. You know what most people would do? Hang up the phone. Epaphras, can't you see I'm in prison here and I'm about ready to die? You can't bother me with some little group of people out in Turkey, Asia Minor. I don't even know you people. I've never been there. I'm going to take care of the people I'm going to take. That's not how Paul talked. He said, oh, tell me the story. I rejoice in my sufferings for you, a church I've never met because the Lord has done something in your life and has uh, formed a group of believers, and my whole life is to serve and to build up and to edify the church, the body of believers. I'm so excited to hear what's going on out there in Asia Minor. Come in and tell me this story. I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking, the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. Now, don't get this mixed up, folks. All the redemptive suffering of Christ happened at the cross. He's not still suffering. There's not more suffering that has to happen in order for you to be in heaven. He said when it was over, you know it. To tell us die. It is finished. Perfection. And he died and he rose again and he sits at the hand of the Father. Paul's not talking about redemptive suffering here. Fill in my flesh what is lacking in the... There's nothing lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And yet, folks, church, people, we as ministers are going to suffer some, not so we can gain entrance into heaven. You wanna, I want to make this clear but because we're followers of him and the world's going to hate us because they hated him. Are we greater than our master? Now, why am I making this such a big deal? Because this is where purgatory comes from, folks. And purgatory is not real. It's not true. It's you're appointed once to die and then there comes the judgment. There's no more things that need to happen in order for you to advance, look at it, to advance towards God. Sound familiar? It's the exact same thing they were talking about in Colossians. You don't go to some resting place and then advance and get further chances. It comes from this. No, 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 no. They're not talking about redemptive suffering. They're just, Paul's just saying, I suffer because I'm following you, Lord. And of course, that happens. Turn on the TV, folks. It's shrinking in on us here in America. The sufferings of Christians. Well, look at this. Uh, For the sake of his body, which is the church, the end of verse 24, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. See, the mystery is this. God chose the Israelites. He took and he's going to go to the Israelites first. The gospel's going to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And so for years, Jewish folks believed that you had to be Jewish. You had to get circumcised. You had to follow our laws to do everything. And he's writing this book to the Gentiles. And he's saying the mystery that no one anticipated, although it was talked about, but it wasn't anticipated, that this salvation that was coming for the Jews wasn't just for the Jews, it was for the whole world. And that's the mystery which I'm passing on to you, he says. See, again, what would Gnostics 
And legalists believe. They would believe unless you do this stuff, you get in the club. Or if you do this stuff, you get in the club. Uh, Gnostics, if you could attain, then you're in. Paul says, my goodness, it's open to everybody as long as you trust in the blood. So that's the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed, chapter 26, to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. See it? Here it comes, which is Christ in you. The Gentiles, wow. They could have Christ in them. That's the hope of glory, that hope of heaven. And it's him we preach. You go to Corinthians where Paul just said, we just make it our aim that we're just only going to preach Jesus Christ. It's the hope of glory, him we preach. I want you to see that. You're like, okay, come on, man. I've heard this and, you know, get on with it. I want to eat lunch. You understand what he's doing there? They thought you could go from emanation to emanation to emanation and emanation. And Paul is saying, forget it. It's only Christ. Nothing else would merit. Why would you go to anything else or slip back into anything else or put a trip on yourself in any other way when you have freedom just to trust in Christ? So Paul's ministry then was to go and warn every man. You notice this? And to teach every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man. Do you get it? It isn't just to some select club. The gospel's good for the brain surgeon. The gospel's for the unemployed person. The gospel's for the rich. The gospel's for the poor. The gospel's for this color, for that color. The gospel's for that side of the tracks, this side of the tracks. The gospel's for that person, that person. It's for everyone. It's not for a select club, and that would be something that the Gnostics would vehemently preach against. Teach every man all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. And isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're to preach. We're to proclaim the good news to people. That's how we plead. We proclaim the good news to people. The Holy Spirit then convicts people of sin and righteousness. And when they surrender their lives to Christ, what do we do? We teach. There's that preaching and warning And then there's the teaching. There's that aspect where we teach and build people up. So why? So that they can take a hold of their ministry and go out and multiply, disciple, make disciples, to teach and to grow up. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Now, I'm going to read you something very quick. I'll probably come back to it in two weeks, but here it is. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. That's that area where Colossae was. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. What is the role of the church and the pastor and each other is to give bravery or to uh, uh, give courage to people in their hearts. Encourage. 
How do we do that? We preach Christ. We build them up in Christ. We do the heavy lifting. We just don't skim over stuff. We really think and dive into who Christ is. We can recognize when there's false teachers. We can recognize false doctrine, and we just participate with Christ. We don't have some program or paradigm of how to get to God. No, it's Jesus. We encourage people in that, and then we knit together in love. We knit our lives together here in the body at large. That's what Paul is trying to get people to do, even in Colossae, where he's never seen. Be built up in courage, strong in the Lord. Knit together in love. If you don't love your brother, you're a liar. You say you love God, but you don't love your brother. John says you're a liar if that happens. No, you knit together. By the way, when you knit, somebody's knitting right now. Some cool bracelets. What do you do with it? You put things side by side, and you stitch it a little bit together. I don't know exactly how you knit, but what do you do? You put people, you put things side by side. You don't put them here and here. And stitching, folks, you ever been stitched? I had my chin cut open once. Man, that hurts. Sometimes being together hurts, but when it's done, it's beautiful. You're knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You catching that? That would, boom, hit the Gnostics right here. What do you mean there's one person, Jesus Christ, in which all knowledge, wisdom, assurance is held? (laughs) He's saying, why would you do anything else? Just go after Christ. Pursue Christ. He's pursued you. Now give your life to Christ. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you, verse 4, with persuasive words. See it? For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Those are military terms, folks. He's saying fall in order and be disciplined. So there's a role for discipline in the Christian life, even in freedom. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk, with, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been, a, have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Boy, these are the marks of a great church, of a fruitful life where people come together. What marks of a great church? Paul gives us to this sprinkled throughout. Beware, verse 8, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. You see Why? This is a book you need to know the backstory on. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world. See, the world will use this vocabulary, and yet we don't pour the same, or Paul doesn't pour the same meaning into their vocabulary as what it, they do. And so you can get off base. So know the truth. By the way, The basic principles of the world is a word out of astrology. It's a phrase out of astrology. We're going to talk about that later. I find that fascinating. But I've read this sort of fast because I wanted to get to the last three verses. So they've poured out empty deceit according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, here, do you think he wants you to know this? Dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Say, God, or, yeah, God, through the Son, by the Spirit, really wants you to get a handle on the fullness of the Godhead 
in Christ. It's, he's the same in nature and essence. The Holy Spirit, the same in nature and essence. This dwells in them permanently. It's not something that was given to them, the Father or the Son and the Spirit. You get it? Now, wait a minute. That's staggering. But here it comes. Can you believe this? Paul ends up at this part of chapter 2, verse 10, and he says, And you're complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. See, I want you to know something. When you come to Christ, you already have everything you ever need for life and godliness. That's another place that tells us that in the Bible. You have everything you need. See, I think what a lot of people think about the Christian life is now we're going to come to Christ and God's going to start adding stuff to me. So I'll have good faith and better faith and bigger faith and all this sort of thing. Weist says this again, and you are in him having been completely filled, full with the present result that you are in a state of fullness. You're in a state of spiritual fullness right now. You don't lack anything. Warren Wearsby says this, ready? When a person is born again into the family of God, he's born complete in Christ. Now, this is a great way of saying it. Just hold on. We're almost done. His spiritual growth is not by addition, but by nutrition. Did you catch that? A person's spiritual growth, because they're complete in Christ, is not by addition, but by nutrition. He grows from the inside out. Nothing needs to be added to Christ because he already is the very fullness of God. In Ephesians 3, 19, the believer draws on Christ, or as he draws on Christ, he's filled unto the, all the fullness of God. Now let me take you to one other place and then I'm going to pray. John, go there. Chapter 1. I spout this verse off a lot. But I missed the beginning. <laughs> Here it is. Oh, John knew it. You know, John's not Paul. I'm not being funny. What I'm trying to tell you is the early church knew this. John's not Paul. Paul's not John. The early church knew this and lived in it. And that's this, verse 16. And of his fullness, Jesus' fullness, we have all received, not some of you, you get it? Not some, not the pastor, not the leadership of the church. All of us, we surrender our lives to Christ, whether we're doctor or lawyer, don't be that. That's crazy. Doctor or lawyer or writer or athlete or whatever we are, just go, to, whatever. We're, we're in the trades, whatever. I don't know. It doesn't matter. All of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. Oh my. The pleroma, the sum total of all the divine power and attributes we can draw upon all that Christ is because he died for us and lives in our heart. All that he is, we receive. It's staggering, folks. So as we move out this week, 
Maybe we're physically worn out. Maybe we're spiritually worn out. Maybe we're emotionally worn out. Maybe there's a circumstance in our life that's so worrisome that we're just wiped out. Maybe there's a relationship that's frayed or, 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 or whatever. Maybe something at work. Maybe, I, I don't know, it could be a million things. Maybe somebody has lied to you and told you different things about Christ that aren't true, and you're trying to recover from that. See, what we've done here today, quickly, I guess, is God has had us do some heavy lifting. (laughs) And he's building you and I and we up together in who Christ really is not who people tell us he is. This is where we get strength and resource and life. And we need it. Because as we walk through those doors, our mission begins, and life is difficult, and there's lots of forces that are telling you a lot of different things. Who are you to share the gospel? You did this. You lied there. You sinned here. You sinned there. Yet we know by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have his righteousness. We're still in relationship with God as we confess our sins and come back. And God, you know, you ever thought, we just discovered this today, and I'll quit. Why God asked you to confess your sins. He knows what you did. <laughs> you know when he asked him in the garden, hey, what have you done? It didn't, it's not like he didn't know. He knew. And, and I know the scriptures. It says if you sin, God won't hear you, but I know. And yet, he says, come and confess to me. You, you know what I'm convinced. Of course, you come, you confess your sins. God, who is faithful and just, will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But you, you know what the confessing is really for? You. He wants you just to live your, light, your life in the light and to admit it. It becomes toxic when we justify and hide stuff. He wants you to admit. Now, here's where I'll close. Look at this. And one of the great things about the Lord is, you know when you confess a fault to a boss, you don't know what's going to be the response. And in fact, sometimes the response is, bang, or maybe a parent, whap, or maybe a friend, I can't be with you anymore, or hang out with you, or... When we confess our sins to God, there's no reproach. Yeah, he chastises us, I get it. But what he's saying is just come back by the blood of my son. Just keep coming back. Do you understand what confession does? It just glues you closer and closer to the Lord. It bonds you to him. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for reconciliation. Thank you for this wonderful, beautiful letter. Thank you for what you've been teaching us over the last two weeks, and I pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. I pray wherever we go, whatever we do this week, 
that you would be glorified, that you would live your life in and through us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.